He pointed a finger. You haven't looked at a calendar lately, Bucks. This is 1901. The old days are dead and gone, and you don't even know it. You think this town's just another place to raise hell. Hell it is. Sure, we've still got the saloons and the girls and the tables, but we've also got waterworks and a gas house and telephones and lights and an opera house. We'll have our streetcars electrified by next year. And let's talk about paving the streets. Welcome to Genre. Each month we pick a different genre of books and each week we read a different story. This month we're reading Westerns. Last week our story was True Grit by Charlie Portis and this week we are reading The Shooters by Glendon Swarthout. I'm Bob. I'm Zach. I'm John. You know, I read this story, I was stuck in my hotel room. I went away somewhere, I was staying in a hotel room, I wanted to go out and explore the mountains, and there was a thunderstorm from the moment I woke up till like midday, middle of the afternoon. And I was like, you know what, I'm in my hotel room, let me just hunker down and read The Shootist, in which almost all of the narrative takes place in the main character's hotel room. So I felt almost like a spiritual connection to this book when I was reading it, it was quite funny. It was beautiful, a little dark. I was so engrossed in it. I hope you could piss. <laughs> and thankfully, I could. Reading this book was really interesting compared to our last book, True Grit by Charlie Portis, because the last book, the emphasis was so much on the depth and the richness of the narrator and the different characters. Each of them were so multidimensional, and they really came alive on the page. So in transitioning to The Shootist and Glendon Swarthout, I felt like at first, it was kind of a shock because the emphasis of this book is so much more on the machismo, the violence. At least in the beginning, when we when we meet our characters, they appear to be kind of caricatures of, of you know, fast shooting cowboys, battle hardened or villains and bandits on the road. I definitely agree. I have to admit, when I first started reading this, I thought it was kind of bullshit. After reading True Grit, and like you said, everyone is so multi-dimensioned. Everyone's a very rounded, complete character in True Grit. We have people who make mistakes, redeem themselves, make mistakes again. Whereas the shootist is, you know, a very one-track-minded man. He's not going to let anyone take advantage of his death. But he's surrounded by all of these clowns. And all of these clowns are very one-dimensional. And stylistically, it's a total 180 from True Grit, and it took me a while to get into it. What does the style do for the the book? I mean, I think at the beginning, it's very much a conventional, kind of almost corny Western. Like, he's, he's going through the desert, someone tries to hold him up, pumps him in the stomach with a the slug, <laughs> and then goes on his way remorseless. And, you know, then he pulls up into the town, and it, it does feel like a real cliche, but I do think it reveals that a lot of depth as it goes on. I feel like Swarthout is very consciously kind of invoking the characterizations of a dime Western novel of the cheap campy pulp paperback, Mm. but he's bringing us into this pulp universe so that he can tell this really incredible and moving story. But it's not that like, like with, with true grit, I felt like that story takes place in the real world and we get a kind of realist story With this, the story takes place in the fictional universe of the wild, wild west. But by setting it in that that setting, he can tell a story that really Mm. turns things on their heads a little bit by by making it be a meditation on death. I think it's really interesting because at first you said you didn't like the story, Bob. And I understand where you're coming from. And it almost reminds me of what happens when, you know, this main character books jb books when he first turns up at a woman's hotel room bon rogers the hotel room it turns out he's gonna essentially spend the rest of his life in when he when she meets him she says i'm not sure i like you very much and i wonder if she's almost reflecting the reader's opinion here mm-hmm. that we're not supposed to like him he's not a likable guy this guy books this main character this you know the the shootest of the main title. We're not supposed to like him, but I think Hmm. that we come to empathize with him and feel for him and almost root for him by the end of the story. As a reader, I didn't really like the main character. I thought I understood him as this like one dimensional killing machine, but I think part of 
our dislike of him, or dislike is the wrong word, I would say weariness of him, comes from the very opening scene in which we meet him. In this scene, he's been writing for days, and he's approaching a town, and a man who has some disability, he's, he's referred to as Claw Hand, accosts him on the side of the road and, and tries to rob him. So what our protagonist does is, you know, he throws down his wallet and the man watches the wallet fall. And in the amount of time that the man takes his eyes off of our protagonist, our protagonist shoots him. But he doesn't shoot him in a way that mm. immediately kills him, which I think it's very much implied that he could have immediately killed him. He could have, you know, shot him in the head or something like that. Instead, it shoots him in the stomach and it, it says the bullet bounces off of his spine and lodges itself into his hip. And here's a quote of what happens. The bandit says, You ain't a going to leave me here. I am, the writer considered him. I will do you a favor, though. You've got a bellyache you are not going to get over. You can die slow or now. If you like it, I will kill you. Kill me! If I was in your fix, I would be obliged. I'm a fair shot and you are old enough, and you don't look as if life has treated you very sporting. Clawhand backed off and sank to his knees again and began to wail like a child. His mouth hung open in shock. Saliva dripped from his chin. Suit yourself, said the man on the crimson pillow, turning as he rode on. Don't try to hold up anyone else before you die, Grandad. You're not worth a damn at it. So what we get here is he ends up besting this bandit. He shoots him. He says, either I will kill you right now or I will leave you to die. The bandit says, please kill me, and then starts crying. And then the man, despite the man begging to die, he decides to leave him. So what did you make of this opening This opening sequence? This is definitely a reason that I was not immediately drawn towards this book as I was to True Grit. The characters in True Grit are pretty easy to like from the get-go. And this, it's page two, page three, I think, and he's killed someone who's just, you know, he's got a claw hand, he needs a way to make money to eat, and he just shot this man to make him suffer probably for the next 48, 72 hours out in the desert alone. It's interesting to start that way because, you know, he's shot in the in the groin, in the hip. He's going to experience the same kind of pain that books will experience throughout the rest of the book. And it's interesting that it's it sandwiches the book, kind of, because he reflects on it again, this killing, this prolonged killing, right at the end of the book before he goes and, you know, meets his own death. But I'd, it was not an easy... Not an easy start to this book. Absolutely. It's really challenging. And he's such a heartless character, it seems. And then it's very interesting that what we get later on is this news that he himself is going to die very soon. And that's actually like the main plot of the book is him, this writer who killed the old man, dealing with his own death. So I wonder if it functions in terms of we've seen him so unmoved in the face of death and suffering and now we're left to kind of wonder if he's gonna feel the same way about his own death and his own suffering is he gonna be as stoic about his own situation whenever he meets people the other characters bring their their preconceived notions of who he is to the to the table they think he's some ruthless murderer they think they think that he goes around killing people they call him assassin and things like that but He's always defending himself, saying he never kills unless he's attacked first. Trouble always comes to him. He never goes to trouble, etc. And I think that this is an example of trouble coming to him. But something about this doesn't mesh perfectly with his own self-presentation later in the story. Mm. Because it's not that trouble came to him and he solved the problem immediately. It's trouble came to him. And then he decided not only to sentence trouble to death, but also to ensure that that person suffers, you know, grievous amounts of pain. And he seems to almost relish that suffering, that cruelty, really, that he's doling out here. And I think that this scene complicates what we later learn about him. Like, like no matter how much he tries to convince people he's a good person, for me, this scene is always weighing in the back of my mind. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's a great point. He 
says that he is just defending himself, but like you're saying, he's clearly taking some kind of almost sadistic pleasure in taking care of business. And I think on one level, he would argue, his defense of himself, I think, would be that, well, I would never rob someone at gunpoint on the street. So I have the right to kill him because he's doing something I would never do to him. So he's in the wrong. And I think from that, he almost seems to infer that I can not only punish him, but I, I, I can make him suffer. I've got the right to do that because he's done something wrong. Therefore, I can do something wrong. I, that's kind of how I read his psychology. Hmm. It's like once you've shown yourself to be a bad person, anything goes. Very different from True Grit. In what sense? You know, they go they go back and forth between bad and good. The way Maddie judges other people and the way this narrator judges other people. If he's able to say, you've done one bad thing, therefore I can kill you. That seems different from Maddie, who is not quite ready to shoot unless she's in danger. Well, I mean, she is going for revenge, but most of the time she's less ready to judge people as harshly. I think. I think that's correct. I, I wonder if that's due to her Christianity. She has this faith that, you know, the real judge of a person's value or worth is is God. Yeah. And it's not really for her to be the judge and jury of people in terms of their moral or spiritual worth. Whereas it's quite clear in this book that <clears throat> the shootest books is not even slightly religious. The He's completely disillusioned with the whole institution of religion. A preacher comes and tries to, or at least pretends to try and save his soul. But it turns out the preacher in this story is actually just trying to get books to sign off on some comment that will benefit his own church to the effect that, oh, you know, I'm John Books and I did terrible things and now I repent and I regret my sin. And Books basically thinks it's all nonsense. So I wonder if that's the the reason here. Like, There's no remnant of Christianity that I can see. You know that I wanted to bring that scene up. That's really interesting because he eventually challenges God directly. He screams into the ceiling and tells God why God is bad and why he books is good. But then when that preacher comes, although he can see through him and he knows he's bullshit, he still weeps. Like it's you know he's he's gotten through all of these other jokers who are trying to get a picture of him to sell, trying to get a book of him to sell, and he never takes it hard emotionally. And then finally, it seems like the last thing to go is this potential for salvation. You know, he's probably heard it all his life. If he would just accept God, he might, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But now he's he's even rejecting that. And that rejection seems to take the biggest toll on him. He, he even has to, he says he has to drink, I think almost like a third of a bottle of the whiskey and then a good few spoonfuls of the laudanum to overcome the meeting with the preacher. Mm. that's definitely his lowest point i think and his only show of weakness that's the moment when he sort of i think realizes that he's scared of death and there's not really any comfort there for him yeah i just didn't know exactly what to make of it i think you're right now that there's no comfort i don't know if he's ever holding on to that comfort of god i don't know but yeah it really takes a lot out of him mm. i think it's interesting how our conversation is kind of bounced from Reading this character as the, you know, the lone Western cowboy type to the man, you know, spurning religion, helpless and in fear of God. And I think that, you know, the way our conversation is kind of bounced between these two really highlights the fact that this is, this is a book that changes over the course of it. Do you agree with that characterization? I mean, do you feel like this is a straight Western novel? through and through. I agree with you that this book changes quite a bit. And I'll give a very specific example. You you read the quote earlier, Zach, about him killing this old man, this claw hand, but letting him die slowly. And actually, to almost at the end of the book, when he's coming to the moment of his own death, he has a kind of like a lucid dream in which Bugs imagines the roles reversed. He imagines he's the old man, and then he imagines getting shot by some guy on a horse. And he actually comes to a moment where he experiences the exact same scene, but with the roles reversed. I think that's a very clear example of his change in character. It's like, is this him finally growing a conscience? What did you make of that? Oh, okay. Conscience is an interesting way to look at it. I almost saw it as guilt, but, you know, really, 
when you have when you have the bandit on the horse taking the place of him, you know, shooting him and laughing and, and riding away, my overwhelming sense was that of powerlessness. He has gone through his entire life in this narrative as being a almost, oh, I don't know, like a superhuman above above law and society. He can do whatever he wants type person, inflict whatever cruelties he wants type. But then in this dream, he's given a vision of how he appears to people who are on the other end of his gun, really. And it's not a good vision for him, or at least it's 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 unsettling. I, I see where you're coming from there, Zach. So what I said was conscience, but now when I'm thinking about it, I think that you've made a great point there, where he defines himself as being powerful, potent, virile, and now he's lost his own power. He has no control or power of his own life or very little, though he just managed to get some back at the end of his life. And now he's experiencing almost as if for the first time being powerless. The only other time, interestingly, that he seems to have experienced his powerlessness is the first time he gets shot. Mm. What happens is he gets shot younger, you know, earlier in his life and he's saved. His life is saved by a doctor called Hostetler. And this doctor is like the one guy he really trusts. And he doesn't even trust this doctor so well. And we learned that the reason for his journey <clears throat> in which he comes across the bandit is to see this doctor, the one who saved his life all those years back. And when he sees the doctor, the doc, you know, they're just kind of talking about old times. Oh, I remember that time you saved my life. And the doctor says, oh, yeah, you, have, you must have the constitution of an ox. I don't know how you survived that gunshot. And Bugs is very satisfied with this. He's like, yeah, I've got the constitution of an ox. Bad news is he sees Hotsteller, and then Hotsteller diagnoses his current problem, which turns out to be terminal cancer. And he says, but doctor, you know, you said you said I had the constitution of an ox. And the doctor just says to him, yeah, even oxes die, Bugs. And he, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that's like the first moment where you see like the 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 facade slip a little bit. He's like, oh, I'm not invincible. Mm. And I think he's dealing with the consequences of that for the rest of the book. It's interesting, too. Just like you said, he we kind of really start to see him change his perspective. We get some hints that he's suffering from something from the very beginning. But Hostetler points this out to him because he's already seen a doctor like a few weeks back. And that other doctor also told him he had terminal cancer, but he didn't believe it. So... He even, you know, he's got so much willpower that he doesn't even believe that he's dying until it's until he's in the thick of it. Let me throw something out at you guys, because, John, previously you characterized Books's descent as a character as being one from coming from a place of power to a place of powerlessness. And I think that it could be slightly more complicated than that, because even as his body is failing him and he's approaching what he knows will be his last day, there is one power that he is still trying to exercise. And that is, that is his control over his own reputation in a sense that even if he can't, if he can't dole out these punishments and, and live this, you know, this virile life that he previously lived, he's still very insistent going out with dignity. And to me, Maybe the first instance of this is what Bob mentioned of he doesn't believe the first doctor. So he rides for nine days straight to find the second doctor, one who he trusts. He's not going to, he's not going to pack his bags for heaven on, you know, on the faith of one doctor who he doesn't even know. Mm. But then all these other characters, the priest who wants him to, you know, write a statement of repentance, the photographer who wants to take his picture and then, you know, sell these, you know, sell these copies of this picture. The ex-girlfriend who wants him to marry her so that she gets some inheritance. All of these people. The barber. Oh, who's the barber? Oh, the barber is a great one. The barber, he goes in for a haircut because he's about to go shoot these men. He wants his dead body to look good. After he gets his haircut, he's like, how much will that be? Barber says, uh, a dollar. And he says, make that $10 because you're going to sell my hair for 20 You owe me $10. And then the barber gives him $10. Oh, that was such a funny scene because the even with the barber cape still on, with our protagonist still in the barber chair, the barber is like sweeping up the hairs from the ground and putting them in a paper bag. I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. 
But all of these people, to me, it felt like each of these people were a certain test. And these people were asking, or not even asking, these people were trying to define his future reputation and the memory of him and what his life meant for him. They were trying to make money off of his memory. And his his final exertion of power is is to be very firm about what his life meant and and what his death means too. Yeah. It's very interesting this character who's very devil-like and even, you know, shouts down God, you know, while living in his his apartment that he's turned into hell filled up with blood and urine and fire, shouts down God, and now he has to resist all of these temptations and stick to his own stick to his own guns of his reputation. I thought that was a nice nice way to frame frame the book. But it's interesting too that it is just reputation. He's not really doing anything good. The the temptations are just I guess anti hubris. I don't know. He he still gets to keep the legend of books alive. Yeah, and I I wouldn't necessarily call them temptations because he doesn't get any benefit by by doing these things and if there is any benefit he gets it's that you know when he gets his picture taken he asks for more money from these people when he gets his haircut taken and the person uh, starts gathering up his hairs he asks for more money but the money isn't for him he's a dying man he doesn't need money mm. the money is for bond rogers mm. and her son gillum the people who are taking care of him and in a sense he's I mean, I think he's become something of a father figure to these people. Mm. Certainly to Gillum. They're quite explicit about that in the story. Yeah, last last book we saw, we, we speculated as to whether Rooster Cogburn had become a father figure to Maddie, the protagonist of True Grit by Charlie Portis. But right. this book, I found myself speculating the same thing. But then I was like, okay, hold off, Zach, hold off. You can't jump into this. Yeah. But then the narrator of the book explicitly says, when Bon Rogers tells Gillum that Books is going to die, this is, this is Gillum's second experience with death. So Gillum's father had died about one year ago. And this is what the narrator says. In a cold dawn, in a cold house, Bond Rogers sat, watching through her own tears, her son grieved the loss in less than two years of two fathers. So Swarthout really wants us to view books as a father figure. That's that's explicit in, in the thematics of this book. Oh, yeah. he Books even says it himself, too. He's like, you need to give him a father. She talks about books, you know, that he, Gillum, really looks up to him. And then when she, that that really intense moment where... Well, Books has been trying to keep it a secret from Gillum that he's going to die. And then Bond knows it. And when she's fighting with Gillum, she f- suddenly says, you know, he's dying. And he sobs just as he did when his father died. So much so that he can't get off of the off of the couch. He just cries there for better part of an hour. It very much rips open a wound that hasn't even healed yet. So yeah, he was definitely looking forward to a father, I think. That's pretty explicit. And yeah, this reminds me of one of my favorite moments in the book about fatherhood. Now, Books doesn't have any children, so it makes sense that he would, maybe towards the end of his life, be willing to take on this fatherhood role, because it's something he's not had in his life so far. But there's a very interesting moment where we've talked of many of these people who come and try and exploit him. While he definitely breaks down when he's speaking to the preacher, the most personal and painful visitor for him is this woman, Sarapta, who is really the only love of his life. They were together about 11 years previous when she was 29. He was like 40 or something like this. And they somehow went apart. I think she left him because she couldn't stand to be with a shootist, the constant anxiety, whether he's going to come home, whether he's going to get killed. She couldn't deal with the lifestyle. So their relationship ended and he went on his way. But then she turns up at his deathbed, and at first he's delighted. He's like, ah, oh, Sarapta. It's great to see you. You're the only woman I've ever loved. You know, he said she used to sing like a mockingbird when they made love, which is quite a, kind of a funny thing to say. And <laughs> <laughs> he, he loves her. He, he generally loves her. You can tell that he loves her. I mean, you don't, you don't say someone sounds like a mockingbird without, I don't know. But 
And she turns up, but it turns out that really she doesn't care about him. She just needs some money so that she can take his name. She wants to marry him and take his name. And then she can be Mrs. Books. And then she can sign off on the authorized biography, as it were, of the great shootest books by this little weasel journalist, Dobkins, who Books kicks out of his hotel room by shoving a gun in his mouth and then kicking him up the behind, <laughs> which is another intense scene. I thought the autobiography was really interesting because by Dobkins' own admission, anything that they couldn't verify or if they didn't know what happened during a certain period of Book's life, they'd just make it up. So it has no... It's like... They're very upfront about the fact that it's just it's just storytelling. And I think that that aspect alone was very uh, sour to books. Certainly. And the, to me, the funniest moment of this scene was when Sarapta tells him about the man she ended up with. She ended up with a freighter, some man on the trains. And she said, everything was fine for a while. Then he started giving me black eyes and so forth. He didn't treat her very well. And Books, at this point, is a little bit closed off to her. And then she says to him, you know, I need to take care of my children. I have two girls with this freighter. And Books just looks her in the eye and says to her, I would have given you boys. And it's like, wow. <laughs> but this this is an interesting point, too, that we've talked about. Like, maybe Books is an unreliable narrator. He's not the narrator, he's the main character, but maybe he's unreliable in reflecting on his own life. I don't think he's lying to us, but I think he does forget certain things or just twist things to make make him the hero of his own story because he did get someone pregnant when he was 18 and it was a girl, but then he lost both of them, both the mother and the child died. Oh, right, of course. Yeah, so even though he says, I would have given you boys, the only time he's gotten someone pregnant, it was a girl. So he does, I think, twist reality sometimes to support what he says. Absolutely. And that's right at the beginning of his life, right? Like you say 18, that's the absolute beginning of his adult life. You have to wonder how it affected his development. 18. Right, and because because it's not the narrator who's saying... If Books had married her, he would have given her boys. But rather, it's Books himself saying, I would have given you boys. Like, you have to read the statement as not a, <laughs> like, prediction of the, f- the future, but rather, like, an instance of yes, his machismo yes. and, like, braggadocio. Like, like he's flexing those muscles in that moment. Yeah, and the, the good, an interesting point about that is the narrator, like you said, Zach, it's Books talking and the narrator doesn't contradict him. Whereas the narrator, when he brings up, when the narrator brings up the one cowboy who says, pity, books is dying. That's a man I could have beat. And everyone around the table, they don't say anything directly, but the narrator hints that they might be doubting him. So it is definitely a machismo thing with these shootists, with these gunmen. Mm. I love those like arrested development moments. Like something, something happens and then the narrator just flat out contradicts. That character's presentation. Yeah. It's good writing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In fact, that was a lie. That, that should not happen. I could take him. He couldn't. couldn't. <laughs> yeah, he could. <laughs> not a chance. But that makes that it's interesting too to see all of these like boobs that come and like try and exploit him. Like you got a good point. They aren't temptations at all. They're just trying to exploit him and trying to be crafty enough to outsmart him, which no one can seem to outsmart books but they are all judging him for being this barbarian he's the last of his kind he's the last shootist and they're trying to modernize the opening quote that we talked about is we're getting paved streets we've got this new hotel called the constantinople we're becoming a modern town and you are holding us back and every time he runs into one of these people who someone who is trying to Get some commerce going, trying to bring more people into the town, trying to use this these old legends of books to make to put El Paso on the map, as they say. He denies them, and we agree with him because we're uh, we're he's our main character. But like you said, John, now we're really through this book. We're really seeing how other people see him. The people really do see him as terrifying, and he even turns into a skeleton as he gets more and more sick. He gets more and more terrifying. And on the way to his death, he dons a, he 
salutes with his hat to a little girl, and she sees him and runs because he looks like a skeleton. So we, we do get to see him him change, and we finally see him see who he is, and sometimes he seems disappointed, and then maybe he does redeem himself, killing the last of the, the bad guys, I don't know, and letting the town modernize. If he if he ends his own kind, I don't know, is that redemption or or not? Modernize is an interesting word and phenomenon because it seems like all of these oh-so-modern people that he talks to are really only there to make money off of him. They seem to have no morals or values beyond that which could be ledgered in your checkbook. It just makes me wonder, how many characters do we meet in this book that are actually respectable or abide by any kind of moral considerations? Because it seems like this world, which he's he's quickly falling away from, is very cheap and very predatory. The, the author doesn't seem to have anything nice to say about this modern world that is that is developing around our old world character. The first uh, first character that comes to mind for me immediately is is his the owner of the hotel, Bon Rogers. I think she's definitely got a lot of moral value. She's very upright and she has firm principles, but she also shows herself to be caring and understanding of books, but also strong enough to stand up to him and stand up to her own son. I think she definitely is a virtuous character in this story. I don't think we get any moments where we think otherwise of her done that sometimes i think she could be a little hard you know harder on her son <laughs> yeah you know she's she's not helpless she's like oh i can't do anything to to make him change but it's like her son's kind of a dweeb though as well well he's a dweeb yeah but uh, she well she tries though i mean she does her best yeah, to yeah, snap yeah. into shape but he is kind of a dweeb i think the son is something worse than a dweeb i think he's kind of insidious he's he's a kind of rootless like something that just seeks after the next pleasure you know it's not he's in fact i think I would go so far as to say is every young person we meet in this story does not appear to be made out of the same principles as as books or like presumably people of books' generation. And I think that's I, I think that's pointed. Hmm. Absolutely. Like not. I think that's intentional on the author's point. Mm-hmm. I mean you mentioned, Bob, the the three shooters and how all of them none of them really compared to books. But easily the worst of these three shootists is Jay Cobb, who is this spotty young man whose father has a decent enough profession. He's a, he owns a creamery and the son works for him, but he's not satisfied with this. He wants notoriety. And so he decides to become a gunman. And we see a scene where he rapes a prostitute with his gun and Gillum is shown to associate quite closely with this guy, Jay Cobb. So they're almost good friends and Jacob like shows Gillum how to shoot and things like this. So it's definitely clear that Gillum's fallen in with a very bad crowd and that we only really do, like you said, hear the youngsters as this bad crowd. Yeah, seriously bad crowd. Not like the outsiders bad crowd, but like seriously awful people bad crowd. Yeah, just completely despicable and worthless bad crowd. Yeah. I I wanted to see what you guys I like the doctor but I also wanted to see what you think about the Marshal. I'm really interested in this character because he has some pretty good points when he's arguing with books, but he does feel a little weaselly just because he's kind of afraid of books. But I don't know if that's a really a good reason for us to not like him. He's characterized as being very cowardly. I think where it turns for me when I think of the Marshal is the moment when the power dynamic shifts a little bit. Hmm. Oh, yeah. He goes in there and tries to sort That's of... That's true. He, well, what he tries to do is Bon Rogers finds out that Books has lied to her. He's told him... He's told Bon Rogers that he's someone else other than who he actually is. And when Bon Rogers finds out that he's this man who's killed 30 people and he's a very dangerous person, she wants him out because he contradicts her moral, moral principles. And so the marshal comes around to try and get Books to leave the hotel, but he's not willing to do that because he's dying. He's got nowhere else to go. He's in a great amount of pain. Mm. So eventually he resorts to telling the marshal this. And the moment he tells the marshal this, the mm. marshal starts gloating to Bugs' face. He starts saying, oh, oh, the sooner you're dead, the better, eh? Wow. 
I'm, I'm sure glad you just told me you're going to die very soon. And as much as we aren't necessarily, as much as we don't necessarily like books based on how he's been characterized up until this point, even against him, we find, or at least I found the Marshall's actions to be really off-putting and indicative of not so very upright and principled person. That's a good point. I did too, and I was wondering if I was just reacting to him being cowardly, but he is taking advantage of someone now hearing that they're sick and that they need help. You know, he's he's happy about the situation. Yeah. It's almost like the moment that Books could have killed that bandit and put him out of his misery, but he chose to let him suffer. Mm-hmm. It's like now the marshal could have just taken the information and said, oh, I don't need to be scared anymore. Well, since you're dying, then don't cause any trouble. That's it. He didn't need to rub salt in the wounds and start saying, the sooner you're kind of gone, the better. Can't wait till you're dead. This is not nice things to say to anybody, no matter what they've done. Well, the marshal also directs him to the people that he will end up killing in the final shootout. Books asks, who are the troublemakers of this town? Who, you know, who? Yeah. And, yeah. And I got the sense that reading the, the marshal give a list of names to someone who that marshal knows is that person is going to kill all those people seemed like a highly unethical <laughs> abuse of power on the, on the marshal's end. That's true. And I think that it would be. I think it would be read differently if this was what we would call like a a white hat marshal, you know, like a like a good guy. Well, marshal of the town, but you know, this is just kind of a this is a scummy marshal, kind of a I don't want to call him a bureaucrat, but he's I'd I'd say a bureaucrat. I think I think I think bureaucrat is not far off because that's what I was wanting to address because he does seem he he talks about, you know, I've got a nice job, I got a nice pension. I don't want to mess this up. I don't want to be in danger. So he is acting like, you know, a bureaucrat or a member of a municipality, not like the old marshals, which books used to be, and like Rooster Cogburn was, these old marshals that were almost more like bounty hunters. He is now like a city cop, kind of in charge of the order of his city. And even though it is a little shady, maybe, to point out to books, you know, who are the worst, the worst, who should, who should I kill? And he does give the information right away. So he's cowardly, but he also kind of represents the, this new reality. He's going to use the last shootist to kill the last of these bad guys, do his dirty work for him, and then continue to collect his pension. Bob, based off of what you're talking about with this sheriff, I kind of want to get back on this, this modernization thing, because if there's one thematic similarity that I notice between the shootist and True Grit, it's that both of these books have this nostalgia from the place in which they are writing in True Grit. The story is being narrated from a from a place many, many years after that Wild West has, has disappeared, and she's talking about her childhood. In this book, the story is actually taking place on the cusp of that transformation, there's telephones and, and books, you know, has never seen a telephone before. But one difference that I noticed between this book and the other is that this book appears to me to be going beyond nostalgia for a time which ha- is no longer present. And it instead appears to be just straight up like venomously anti-modern. It, it seems to be portraying the kind of post you know, post-Civil War, like, industrialization of the United States as being, like, explicitly a bad thing, particularly on the, I don't want to say the souls, because this isn't a book about the soul, but it does, it does appear to be bad for the character of all of these modern people. All of these people that come and try and take advantage of books do seem to have this modern money-grubbing, well, maybe that's been going on forever. It's definitely been going on forever, but I think there's a, I think there's a kind of two-facedness to the people who come to see him. Where on the one hand they're feigning this respect for him, like oh you're the great shootist, you know everyone wants to hear about the great books, but really they just want to make a profit of him. Yeah, I mean there there there's no human element to their interactions. It's it's entirely a sales pitch for the overwhelming majority of them. Absolutely, and this is not lost on books, but at the same time he seems to recover some of his self at the end because. You know, he says here as a quote, Tarrant, 
owns my horse and saddle. The barber has bought my hair. The second-hand man will have my watch and such. My guns will go to the boy. The photographer has my likeness. My cancer and my corpse belong to Beckham. That reporter did not get my reputation, though. Sarepta cannot sell my name. And the reverend went away without my soul. So I've kept my valuables. So here, you say it's not a book about the soul, but it's indicated here that Book still considers himself to have one. And that his soul and his name are his two valuables. There was two, right? On his reputation. His soul, his name, and his reputation. Okay, okay, all right. The, th- the holy trinity, as it were, of Western shooters. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. There was one point that I think, well, I want to make, and I think maybe it will be controversial. I have some evidence I'm going to throw down, but I want to say that Swarthout is very inspired by the Iliad when he's doing this showdown. This book is called The Shootist. I'm waiting for Guns Drawn, a showdown. It doesn't happen until the very end. I was expecting it to be throughout the book. It happens at the very end. So I, I took out some quotes from the Iliad, and I took out some quotes from Swarthout from this final showdown. So here's an Iliad quote. Ilionius was his only son, and Penelius now wounded him in the eye under his eyebrows, tearing the eyeball from its socket. The spear went right through the eye into the nape of the neck, and he fell, stretching out both hands before him. Penelius then drew his sword and smote him on the neck, so that both head and helmet came tumbling down to the ground with the spear still sticking in his eye. He then held up the head as though it had been a poppy head and showed it to the Trojans. So that's the Iliad, and then now here's a scene from Swarthout's book, The Shootist. His bullet totally smashed Sereno's globe or eyeball, spattering floor and bar and locker doors with the gelatinous substance of the eyeball. Slivers of bone were driven by the round through the brain, and a triangle of skull and hair was lifted out at the exit wound in the occipital area. Serrano tumbled backward to lie on his side near Jay Cobb. There's a few other ones... Find them yourselves, I suppose, but there's these really cool descriptions of spears in the Iliad passing through the body like piece by piece by piece, and then body on the spear as the spear flies through this scene of war, and very similar scenes in Swarthout's book. Bob, I think this is a really good connection you've made, because what Homer's Homer's Iliad and Swarthout's shootest share is this very precise language that comes with their violence. And it's not just a matter of he he shot him in the head and he died. It's like talking it's it's using medical terms, the the occipital area, which is like the back of your skull. And it's like giving a precise path that the bullet takes through the head. Something about it is deeply unsettling. And I think that the use of this medical language in there is it, I don't know, it creates this it creates this surgeon's eye view of a gunfight that that is also unsettling. I agree. You've tempted me one more time. I just got to read one more surgeon's eye view here. Quote, it penetrated the temporal bone above and forward of the ear, exposed the brain, passed through the brain, carrying with it segments of skull and exited through the right orbit or eye socket, taking off the ethmoid plate and the bridge of the nose. Cool stuff. I think that's a great observation. Another link I've noticed, something a lot more recent and something we've covered on the show is the prose in this story really reminded me of the Mike Hammer stories by Mickey Spillane, such as My Gun is Quick. I think this works in two ways. One, in his dialogue. He's very short and to the point. There's one great point here when Bon Rogers says to him, you sound like a man accustomed to giving orders. And he responds, no, ma'am to doing as I please. And I was like, that's a, that's a great line. Just straight to the point. Mm. <laughs> that's a very Mike Hammer. And also the way he talks about women and feels about women is also very similar. Here's a great line. The West was filling up with women like Bond Rogers. He, is a, he had observed to himself and he would not give a pinch of dried owl shit for the lot of them. I was like, a pinch of dried owl shit? Like... Who thinks of that? Very my camera. <laughs> I, I feel like Mickey's plane's the only writer that I can think of that would also come up with that. I always think of the great line, Mike Hammer punched him in the stomach and he doubled over like a pretzel. 
<laughs> I think this similar, that hilarious, but also a spot-on metaphor is is very much straight out of the Mickey Spillane playbook. His his relationship with Bond Rogers is really interesting to me because mm. I think at the beginning he views her as something of a I don't know a, like a pearl clutcher, like someone who's easily offended, someone who is quick to morally condemn yeah. things that she may not have firsthand experience of. Or, you know, quick to draw conclusions. But by the end of the book, I think there is a sense in which he views her as like something of like the ideal woman for him. There's some, there's some passable fan fiction that could happen. You know, what if books doesn't die? And we could definitely imagine a love story between Bond and books. Kill him the third wheel. Well, yeah, I mean, and we can imagine him surviving and becoming this father figure to Gillum and setting him on the on the straight and narrow path. And also, I mean, he took all that money and he he gave it to Bond Rogers so that she could be financially stable. There is a sense in which she what like the I, the relationship that they had was she cared for him when he was sick and he wanted to care for her after he was gone. And I can't help but feel like these echoes of the, you know, the marriage vow of like in sickness and in health, it, like, like emotionally, I feel like in his last days, he did in a sense, marry Bond Rogers. Yeah. And then their awful little son stole all the money. He stole the dowry. That kid sucked. Yeah. He stole it. Yeah. He, he opens up the cupboard, steals the letter and the money. That's, yeah. So she never gets to read the letter that books wrote her, unless Gillum changes his mind and returns, but I don't know. It's interesting you bring up Gillum at the end of the book there, because Gillum plays an absolutely crucial role at the end of this book. Firstly, it's Gillum who actually kills books. They go to the Constantinople, and he's assembled the three baddest guys in the city, as recommended to him by the, the marshal. And books being books, he kills them all. None of them managed to kill him, which was kind of the point. <laughs> and even the barman of the Constantinople doesn't manage to kill him. He gets killed as well. And there's only one person left who can kill books, which is actually Gillum. And he basically says to Gillum, like, Gillum, please kill me. I, I need to die. Like, I, I, I don't want to be here any longer. And it's Gillum that kills him. And then at the end of the book, the final paragraph is Gillum kind of riding off into the sunset on this adrenaline high, having killed books, feeling the best he's ever felt in his entire life. And it's really quite hard to understand why Swartha has chosen to end the book with this of all points. You know, this question of like, what is Gillum going to do next? Like, where does he go from here? Here's a final paragraph of the book. As the crowd tidied across the street, Gillum Rogers strode away down it, swinging, swinging a gun in each hand. An alchemy of false spring sunlight turned the nickel of the Remingtons to silver. He strode, head up, shoulders back, taller to himself, having sensations he had never known before. One gun was still warm in his hand. The bite of smoke was in his nose and the taste of death on his tongue. His heart was high in his gullet. The danger passed. And now the sweat suddenly and the nothingness and the sweet, clean feeling of being born. It seems to hear that Gillum will almost go on and be the next shootist, but the irony is that's the exact opposite of what the shootist of the story, Books, wants. As we already said, Books gathers the money so that he can go to school, but it seems very hard for me to imagine Gillum going to school the way he's acting and feeling right now, unless something very drastic changes. Well, I also think that Books has a kind of moral compass to him. Gillum does not. So what we're seeing right here is not the birth of a new hero, but to me, what I read was the birth of a new villain. I found this to be a somewhat unsettling ending. I think it's very unsettling, and it probably is a new villain. And I think it potentially speaks to this death of the Old West and transition into the modern age. I don't know. But we see books as the exact same quote when he's talking about the pleasure of life. He's remembering the things he's enjoyed in life right before he dies. And the final bit, which he says is the best, he says, 
just afterward, with the gun warm in my hand, the bite of smoke in my nose, the taste of death on my tongue, my heart high in my gullet, the danger past, and in the sweat, suddenly, and the nothingness, and the sweet, clean feel of being born. So it's the same same exact thing. Is Gillum just going to be another books? Books has obviously done some bad things in the past, stuff we didn't like. He has a really high opinion of himself, but everyone else is terrified of him. Was he actually moral or not? We seem to think he's moral, but Gillum has done nothing good. He's still a kid. He could change. Books also left home at around 16. So Gillum is following exactly in his footsteps. But will he be more dangerous? Will he not kill bad men, but good men? And will he kill, if he's just as skilled as Books, will he kill 30 good men when Books killed 30 bad men? And can we just take a moment to observe how wrong he turned out to be about the legacy of guns in the United States? (laughs) 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 Oh, yes. I'm really interested in this trope that you see in literature. I mean, like we see it in Tolkien. And then, you know, we can also see it in ancient Greek authors like Hesiod of, you know, there being once a golden age. And then it, you know, giving over to the Silver Age, you know, perhaps a little bit more fallen away, and the Bronze Age, and then, you know, finally just the the Iron Age, and like this this idea that history is this falling away from the good into steps that are progressively worse and worse, and and to me, this book is a proud participant of that tradition. It it, it just keeps getting worse from here on out. <laughs> Next week, we're reading Hondo by Louis L'Amour. If you're listening to us on Spotify, please follow us and you'll get notified whenever there's a new episode. You'll hear all about Hondo by Louis L'Amour. Listen on iTunes, give us a review and help us to grow and find new listeners. Finally, if you want to share a book with us that you've enjoyed or you have some recommendations for us or thoughts or whatever you want to do, our email address is genrepodcast at gmail.com Talk to you later, Bob and John. Talk to you later, John and Zach. Talk to you later, Zach and Bob. <laughs>